Why this fool got more comics than a motherfucker? MCMF, the comic book podcast where I try to get you, dear listener, into the wonderful world of the comic books by making my friends read said comic books. My name is Marcus Mr. Summers. If you are nasty, joining me on this episode to talk about uh, one of the great Superman stories of all time, it's Alex. Yes, very excited to talk about this. Uh, For the man who has everything, uh, one of the biggest probably one of the more interesting little collaborations put together to be able to get some people in get some superman fans reading a little bit of interesting stuff yeah like this is famously one of the stories that alan moore didn't mind that they uh adapted later um mostly because they didn't fuck him on it uh yeah (laughs) Alan Moore famously fucking does not fuck with DC Comics anymore, uh, by and large, because they kept trying to fuck him. Yeah, not a big fan on a lot of different things. I mean, obviously, uh, Alan Moore, I mean, for starters, uh, like, you mentioned that Justice League Unlimited, that it got adapted, that it was in something else. Was that your first experience with the comic, actually? Because that was mine. Yeah. Yeah. That's, like, episode two of Justice League Unlimited. Like... It's very close, very early. (laughs) Extremely early. Like, the first one is, like... um, Because, like, the thing about Justice League Unlimited was that it is a just straight continuation of the Justice League, that cartoon that already existed, which itself is a continuation of, like, Batman the Animated Series and Superman the Animated Series. Uh, So it's all one cohesive thing. And so when you start Unlimited, it starts with the idea that you, the viewer, know who the established members of the League are. So that first episode is introducing Green Arrow, introducing Supergirl, uh, introducing Captain Atom. And then this goes right back to Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. Uh, Yeah. And it explores the idea of it's Superman. Basically, the premise is it's Superman's birthday. And uh, when Bruce and Diana show up at the Fortress of Solitude to celebrate with him, he is uh, in a trance brought on by Black Mercy. Uh, yes. Which, I gotta say, Black Mercy is an incredible fucking name for... Incredible? <laughs> like, just as... Like, we have... I, I was thinking about this as well, but, like, as far as, like, Superman or Justice League-related sort of monsters that like bind to you like starro's another one that comes to right, mind with yeah. this that covers your body but black mercy is like like if star was a goth or something like yes. you, you got star <laughs> from the goth planet black mercy's the name it's got these black tendrils coming out of it it wraps around your whole body as opposed to just your chest or your face right. like black mercy sounds like a punk band yes Really, I would go to see a Black Mercy yeah. show. That's hey, for yeah, sure. Me, me and some of the guys are gonna go see Black Mercy this weekend. Like hell yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Let's go fucking see Black Mercy. That's the shit. Black Mercy opening for Mastodon and like <laughs> you know, Ghost. Like <laughs> that's that's a great ticket there. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, and so this book, the, the fascinating thing about this book to me more than anything uh, is that this is happening not just pre-crisis. This is happening concurrently with Infinite Crisis. Or not Infinite Crisis, Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yeah, I actually did want to bring that up. So two, this is two months into the Crisis on Infinite Earths event. Right. And there's a lot of things about this that because of its time and its placing, it's really kind of interesting. I mean, yeah. pre-crisis, um, obviously we'll get more into that in the episode, but Krypton was depicted in a certain way pre-crisis compared to post-crisis with the John Byrne Man of Steel uh, comic book that immediately follows crisis and reestablishes the Superman narrative. But there are a lot of these little bits and pieces in this comic that kind of almost herald like an approach to a more realistic Superman, an approach to a more grounded Superman, right. as grounded as you can get. Yeah, and like this is to me, this is one of my favorite Superman stories because I, I've always felt like, like as I've gotten older, I should say, um, if the problem in your Superman story can be solved by Superman punching something you have failed to understand Superman. Right. There um, has to be a much greater thing there, yeah. Right. And so, in the case of this story, uh, it's, a, it's a problem of his mind, and it's outside people trying to help him uh, solve it. Once Superman breaks free of the Black Mercy, he pretty much handles Mongol. But it's, uh, like, everything that precedes that that makes this story interesting. It's like... Um, Another story I'm sure I'll do on the show at some point is uh, uh, what's is it what's so funny about Truth, Justice, and the American Way? Yes, yes, yes. I big classic. Happened to, to Truth, but it's yeah, it's what's so funny about it, um, which is that was adapted to. Like, here's the thing: a lot of like the best Superman stories are like very quickly adapted into other things because yeah. they make for great stories to to tell on screen. Uh, so uh, this, there's uh, what's so funny about Truth, Justice, and the American Way, which becomes uh, which becomes Superman versus the Elite. Superman versus the Elite, yeah. Uh, with fucking all star uh, suit. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, in in Superman versus the Elite, uh, Lois Lane is voiced by um, the goth chick from uh, from NCIS. Shut off, really? Yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. See, I watched that probably before I started caring about, like, voice talent. So I, I got to tap in, uh, you know, to a lot of these again. I, you know, All-Star Superman, we, um, I was about to say that as well as another kind of Superman oh, story. Yeah. Yes. That's another one that I watched again recently. I'm like, really? Like, you know, these people voicing these characters? Um, I have to ask you to, to bounce off of that, actually, from what you're talking about. Superman as a character kind of often gets like the the short scrub of things you know he, he's the type of person where people go you know these characters this character is boring and only these specific stories are interesting like would you say that the prevalence of superman stories being adapted kind of helps to people kind of seeing okay maybe this little pocket of storytelling or that little pocket of storytelling yeah and I do you so. think it would help like superman if like I don't know, like, the adaptations were, weren't just the only popular thing about him. The tricky thing, I think, is that a lot of people try to approach Superman like he's Goku. 
Mm. Like, (laughs) a lot of people's Superman opinions are shaped in this very shonen way, where it's like, well, he can't be interesting because the only thing that's interesting is the fights. And so when you're approaching it uh, from the idea that how you solve the fight problem is mm-hmm. like when, when you approach it from that angle Superman seems super boring because he's a character who can do anything uh, right and I think the tricky thing is that all of these adaptations like another great one is Doomsday I really like the that adaptation I think Superman the mm-hmm. animated series really flies under a lot of people's radar as a really good show Especially in comparison to Batman, yeah. I was going to say, by and large, because Batman the Animated Series is one of the best superhero TV shows that's ever come out. But I think... I think more than anything, the adaptations we get of Superman try to delve into Superman more as a person than as a function. And right. so... Those are trying to show, like, hey, he is so there's so much more to him than just he punches things and he can fly. He is like this very earnest person. And like with shows like The Boys and Invincible and all these things that have these characters that are deconstructions of Superman, I feel like people have like lost sight of the thing that makes Superman special. The thing that makes him special is not that he is Superman, but it is that he is a super right that he's clark kent and he has the power to do good based on that morality there right his moral compass comes from the fact that he was raised by these extremely earnest people in a farm town in kansas like he does good because he wants to because he feels like that's the thing that you're supposed to do you're supposed to do right by people that's the thing that makes him special is that despite having all of this power the power to be if he wanted to destroy the world if he wanted to be homelander let's say yeah he could you could do it without thinking about it right that's the whole point of the injustice games is that like once he's pushed too far he can do whatever but that's not who he is as an individual, as a person. And I think for a lot of people, on top of the whole, well, this guy can solve any fight uh, mentality, I think the idea is that Superman is unrealistic because it's hard for people to imagine a person with unlimited power who uses that power to do right by people. Right. Like, there is, you know... Not to jump into Batman again, but the thought process of Batman being one day, one bad day away from going out and killing his villains and stuff, or certain characters being like on that edge in a sense. Like Superman, I feel like, you know, we'll see in this story, like he's definitely on an edge of being angry. He has the ability to experience a full range of emotions. But I think too many people have this thought process where it's like it's unrealistic for someone to, like you said, have all that power and not be just, like, a bad day away from using it for all of their own purposes. Right, and, like, I think that people also lose sight of, like, these deconstructive characters, like Homelander, again, to use him as the example. Yeah. The the thing that makes them different isn't that 
they were regular people who found out that they were gods. It, like, in Homelander's case, he's like this fractured, broken person who never got a chance. He, he was doomed to be this person because of the mm-hmm. outside around him. It's a nature versus nurture argument. People right. think that by default, this power corrupts people. But in if you compare a character like Homelander to a character like Superman, which I think is fair to do because they are made to be... One is made to contrast the other. Right. Uh, Superman was raised by two loving parents uh, who didn't care where he came from, didn't care that he could fly, that he could run super fast. They just wanted him to be a good person. That was fundamentally Mon Pa Kent's ethos, raising Clark and then later raising Connor. They don't care about this other stuff. They just want you to be a good person. Versus Homelander, uh, at least as he is depicted in the show, I don't know jack or shit about the boys as a comic. And you person. shouldn't. And, and you I shouldn't. I don't want to know. I don't. I don't want to know. <laughs> I could do without reading a fucking Garth Ennis book. Uh, I'm CMF uh, the boys episode coming. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's episode five hundred. Um, but. As he's put forward in the TV show, Homelander had no mother, had no father. Well, like, didn't know who his mother and father were. Was right. raised in a controlled environment to be a superhero but for a corporation's purposes. Right. And you see it come out of him all the time. He is desperate from the for the approval of a mother figure, of a father figure. Um not going to get into spoilers necessarily because I don't know. Season three just ended what last week. Yeah, I'm not going to say it. Uh, but he is like, like clawing for somebody look at me, somebody tell me I'm doing a good job. But he doesn't know how to be good. Right. He knows how to do the thing that they told him to do, that they raised him to do well, but he doesn't know how to actually be the person that he's presenting himself as being because he was he no one ever taught him how. Right. No one ever taught and even, him how to manage his emotions and regulate himself in that way. And even looking at like kind of examples of Superman like characters that are also meant to be realistic, like you know, we talked about Invincible before. I mean, even Invincible being a character who is meant to be heroic, like there is definitely kind of this this difference and this fracturing and kind of how that father figure, that mother figure approach is taken. So like, you know, obviously, um, you know, with, uh, oh God, Omni-Man. Sorry, I forgot his name, but Omni-Man yeah, being- Yeah, you did the thing, the- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Didn't see it on, you know, you, you probably won't see it on the audio, but I did definitely poke at my head with, with both of my fingers there to try to remember. Um, but with Omni-Man as well, him being a specific type of character that is nurturing in a completely different way, you know, that also frames, you know, his approach to being a Superman-like character differently. So it's like people's approach to Superman based on those analogs of Superman ignore the fact that Superman is fundamentally meant to be this comic book character who 
doesn't have all of these kind of, oh, you have to have these realistic kind of, oh, what if, you know, every person thinks this way, every person is this way, every person has these kind of approaches. Like Superman is meant to be an ideal and he's meant to be an approach the same way that I think that Batman in some ways in the past was meant to be an ideal and an I approach. I this like period, like the, the mid 80s. Yeah. All of these superheroes at one time were meant to be a specific approach. And I mean, obviously post-crisis, you know, there are approaches to make uh, superheroes that are more grounded, superheroes that are kind of a little bit more widely approached. And you look at Marvel, you look at all of these other things that are out there. And it's like, we kind of lose the fact that we can in fact have these characters who are still ideals. Maybe they have some changes that are made to them over the times, but Superman can still be Superman without you having to, or without anyone having to pull him down or drag him to a specific level. That's where you can have those stories like The Boys, the television show, or, you know, Invincible or Injustice or all these other stories that have told these other depictions. You can, you know, Superman can be who Superman is. Yeah, and like, you know, we'll get into the, the book itself here in a sec. Um, but I just want to go to that point you made there about the, uh, about like post-crisis trying to grind, ground things a lot more. Because I think Marvel and DC had, they're telling very similar stories in the 80s. Um, mm. Like uh, most notably, as I've said in a couple episodes before, the Teen Titans and the, and the X Men are so like one to one at that point. Right. Um, but I think what happens is in the '90s, Marvel leans harder into like the Jim Lee, uh, Rob Liefeld, um, you know, what would become the Image style, where everything is just like pointy and sharp and extreme and hardcore. Uh, I will note that they almost went out of business in 1995. Right. I wonder, wonder what led to that. <laughs> Whereas DC did really try to to ground these characters and give them stories that were more, give them more depth, give them more agency, and give them these stories that were really like built in reality. Like a big part of why I have such an affection for Tim Drake as a character. And like his series, I listen. I have some issues with Chuck Dixon, like as his, you know, because Chuck Dixon is, yeah. you know, ultra conservative. Uh, less said about him, the better. But his run on Robin and Nightwing in the mid '90s, because uh, he's writing both of those characters concurrently uh, up until around like '98, '99. That does so much to ground those casts not just those two individual characters but like stephanie brown comes into her own as this incredible supporting character uh, right in the 90s and she's got that great like stephanie's pregnancy storyline i don't know how it would go today and it's remarkably progressive even for chuck dixon right like it's it's executed well stephanie is never made to feel like like to you the reader it's never like beating you over the head and going like stephanie is a bad person because she had sex like no <laughs> it's it's like look stephanie is a 16 year old girl who had sex with her ex-boyfriend who ran out on her her mother is 
reco- a recovering addict. Her father is a supervillain. She is in no position to be a mother, but she wants to give this child a good life. So it goes through all the stages of her deciding, I'm going to give this child up for adoption. I don't ever want to see this child. I, I don't want to know if I had a boy or a girl. I, it's, I don't want to know. Um, right. Because then it'll be harder to do it. And I'm just like reading it. I read it for the first time like 10 years ago. I just went like, wow, this is like really, really something. And then looking at it now and it's like, wow, no, this is really grounded in reality. And especially the reality for the time, for the late 90s. Um, yeah. And I think that was kind of, that's like a microcosm what made DC Comics so good at that point in time is that they made such a concerted effort to f- make these characters feel like people instead of functions. Right. While across the island at Marvel, it, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> hey, everybody but Spider-Man is a function. Yeah. They had to swing back around to that eventually right. they, they and, and be eventually. able to get that right yeah and do it now where it's like hey yeah these are like fully fleshed out people yeah well speaking on people to flesh out characters i mean you know the creative team for this you you mentioned alan moore of course i do also want to give a shout out to the artist uh dave Dave gibbons Gibbons, who you know is uh probably would be recognizable to people for being his collaborator on Watchmen. These two working together to work on Watchmen. Uh, Gibbons is also very well known for drawing Green Lantern uh, as well. Um, He drew the Hard Traveling Heroes uh, arc, I believe, was kind of the time period he was working on with Len Wayne. Um, And it's also notable that he was also a writer for some uh, comics as well in the mid-90s. Uh, two comics that I actually read when I was a kid. Uh, Batman versus Predator, which I feel like needs no introduction. <laughs> <laughs> which gave me way too many impressions on which characters were DC properties. <laughs> and he also wrote a very interesting comic called Superman Cal, which is what if Clark Kent landed in the medieval times? Which is an Elseworlds concept that I feel like would be... Elseworlds was out there in the mid-90s, let me tell you. Elseworlds... Let me me pull up some Elseworlds, because they were... (laughs) They were just like, somebody is in the DC office, it's Friday, let's throw... uh, Let's just throw some shit at the wall and see what sticks. Just, we got... We've got character, (laughs) we've got situation, we've got setting and we're just throwing darts like yeah you ever seen blank man Man. (laughs) this is a weird pull you ever seen the movie blank man i have not no i have not (laughs) so blank man (laughs) blank man is a i think it's a 1994 movie uh starring damon wayans and david allen greer okay um and um and uh robin givens who looks incredible in that fucking movie oh, yeah? it's so good um uh blank man is 1994 yeah so they okay. there is a scene in that movie where david allen greer works at a newspaper it's either a newspaper or a magazine i can't remember 
and the ma- the magazine editor is leaned back in his chair with a bunch of like post-it notes on the wall. And just <laughs> it's like a tabloid. I'm remembering it in real time. He's it's like okay. a tabloid magazine. And he's sitting there and he throws the dart and he says the vice president and an alien have SM sex. <laughs> <laughs> so well, get that to definitely it. fits the that definitely fits the Elseworlds <laughs> concept. I mean, just off of the top of my head, I remember there was this story where Superman had like a gigantic chain gun, and he was like an old man, <laughs> and he was killing like clones of Batman for some reason. I remember this one where it took place like it was the Justice League, like in a post after the apocalypse thing, and like Superman was like Superman and Wonder Woman were basically kind of like ruling over all the metahumans that were left basically like it, they had a lot of weird concepts especially in the 90s and i mean that's not even counting some of the more recognizable concepts of like elsewhere's like come get kingdom come gotham by gaslight some of the other things that have kind of been a little bit more out I mean, there the, the so Dark returns is effectively in elseworlds right uh, so yeah gibbons has had that gibbons has had that kind of uh stamp on a lot of on my childhood at least yeah, with those type of concepts his superman like when i close my eyes and picture superman it's dave gibbons superman hmm. yeah it, some of the, the way that he draws the s something about his lines um especially like when i think of superman of the 80s with this uh with the way that his hair is colored of the in the 80s and 90s i think of dave gibbons yeah, definitely a very human Superman. I mean, we'll, we'll go through that as we go through the story. But I mean, like I mentioned before, Clark experiences a, a very wide range of emotions. And I feel yes. like only Gibbons could really bring that to us in, in as much clarity as he does. Yeah, um, especially on Superman. Like his, just something about the way he draws Clark is very human. Yeah. Um, but we're, we're 20 minutes in, so let's... Uh... Let's get into it. This is For the Man Who Has Everything, uh, Superman Annual number 11, uh, cover date in 1985. Uh, first note, this book cost $1.25. And that's apparently, that's like a more expensive rate yes. as well because it's an annual to go back to those days. Oh my God. If I went back to 1985 with all the money in my bank account right now, I would live like a king. <laughs> Like a dollar twenty-five in nineteen eighty-five is worth three dollars for forty-four today. Goodness, that doesn't feel like a lot, but at the same time, right. it is. And I mean, when you really think about it, this is still less than like regular comic books cost now. Comic books now cost like five bucks. Yeah. But it, this is so still by like today's standards, this would be. This would be cheaper than like a book is now at three forty five. Exactly. Um, Alan Moore. So getting into the book, Alan Moore, and I know I say this every time we read something from the eighties. Um, I'm sure I'm going to do a Chris Claremont story here soon um, mm. as I read through more of that stuff. Uh, but at like the eighties, everybody writes comic books like they're novels. A lot of pros, yeah. A lot of pros, because this opens with 
a very like pretty pretty krypton skyline um and it's uh opens with west of the city red evening light refracts through giant maces of diamond the sky ripples at the horizon pastel veils billowing in wind walking home weary the spectacle is lost upon him working at the institute of geology since dawn he has cataloged 200 specimens from the candor crater eyes aching he wonders if van and orna will still be up the muffled blare of the holofactor comes through the forum where the children watch Nightwing and Flamebird. Good, they're awake. I should note for Nightwing and Flamebird, sorry. This is very similarly to kind of how we were talking about the continuity and placement. This is a year after Dick has used, Dick has taken on the Nightwing moniker. But it is also a year before the Nightwing moniker becomes this sort of mythological past legendary character right it, so it kind of is more kind of leaning into that a little bit it, it makes me wonder if there were some plans or there's some things that were pulled around into post-crisis from the, this midpoint of storytelling between crisis is beginning and crisis is ending right because nightwing does now it's been when did, I, when did I read Judas Contract? That was almost a year ago, last time I read yeah, it. So I don't yeah. remember off the top of my head. But I'm pretty sure Nightwing does make like a vague allusion to something super, like Superman telling him about uh, about Nightwing on Krypton. Yeah, so the pre-crisis Nightwing and Flamebird were very Silver Age Superman would go to Kandor occasionally and would disguise himself as Nightwing and Jimmy Olsen would go with him and disguise himself as Flamebird. Post-Crisis, they made it so that Nightwing and Flamebird were the original Kryptonian superheroes. Like, they were the original protectors, basically kind of going around and doing stuff, and they were separate entities compared to Superman and Jimmy. So it is kind of separating the two things in this story, and a little bit playing into the concept of whether, you know, I mean, we don't know who this individual who is monologuing is until, you know, we get to the next panel here. So it kind of makes you wonder, you know, when is this? What is this? You know, maybe it's Krypton, but what's going on here? Right. Kind of building the suspect, building to the reveal. Yeah, like part of it too is like they kind of allude to the fact that this is krypton by having like a red sky at sunset and talking about how you know it's red evening light uh, right superman has or krypton has a red sun Uh, yeah but it's not until he goes through the door um because he says uh the it says he'll read them another scarlet jungle story before bed leaving the night for him and lila just the two of them and the door slides open, and we see all of these people here uh, wishing him a happy birth- birthday. But on Krypton, it's called a first day, which I think is yeah. like a clever little thing there. Um, Love that. And it's not until uh, the woman in the middle, Lila, his wife, says, Happy first day, Cal, that we realize as, the car- as it kind of pans around, uh, this is Superman. Uh, it says... Uh, says uh van tugs at his tunic kara zor-el gives him a new headband on the holofactor nightwing saves flamebird from a rogue metal eater uh 
His weariness lifts him. The man has his family about him. He is content. I really like this shot. You know, the reveal of Clark here. I mean, or, or Cal, I should say here. Um, because it kind of shows off this interesting little bit of fashion for Krypton here. I mean... The, the shades? <laughs> yeah. It's very... It's very... I don't want to say Jetsons because it is different, but it's like retro futuristic kind of inspired. Yeah. And it might be a little, it's interesting as well, because like I said before, this is pre-crisis before Krypton has kind of turned into a more colder society. What you might recognize from, you know, Man of Steel, the movie, what you might recognize from, you know, Man of Steel, the comic book, where they're all wearing the specific tunics with like the, the white kind of lines in them and stuff right. like that and the crystal shapes. Yeah, this is very kind of like 60s aesthetic. Um, this looks like a, he looks like he's wearing a baseball uniform. Yeah, very Wonder World kind of, yes. you know, very, very society if, you know, this society if this didn't happen, me meme image, you know, stuff. <laughs> society if Krypton's red sun did not explode. <laughs> Society if Alan Moore liked DC Comics. <laughs> yeah, society if, if DC Comics decided to pay Alan Moore. Uh, we cut on the next page to the Arctic Circle on February 29th. Which, Superman's birthday is February 29th? <laughs> I just got how weird that would be, honestly. <laughs> Like, is that just the day they found him? Hmm. I'm not sure, actually. Maybe that is... Maybe that is uh, how that works, I guess. Maybe he found out what that his birthday would kind of be like this on Krypton, and right. he just... Did, they didn't have a concept of leap days, so they were like... Yeah, February 29th. Also, worth mentioning, this is 1985. There was not a February 29th in 1985. Oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> time um, is time is faked, Alan Moore. Like that's for true. Um, so it cuts to Wonder Woman standing in front of her invisible plane. Uh, you want to talk about a thing that they just don't use anymore? Wonder Woman's invisible plane. Uh, you know, when you can fly, who needs a plane, right? Yeah. Well, they made her able. You know, they made her able to fly, and that got rid of the need for the invisible plane however invisible plane is very funny yeah exactly <laughs> it's worth it's worth revisiting at least it's worth mentioning as a part of her her content give cassie the invisible plane she can fly yes. but she would absolutely fly the invisible plane she would think it's hilarious absolutely <laughs> she would Just absolutely it. do it for the bit yeah <laughs> Also, give her her wig and goggles back. She doesn't need them, but again, it's funny. Yeah. She seems like the type that would do stuff for the bit, honestly, so. <laughs> Things Cassie has done for the bit that also dated Tim. Oh. Poor <laughs> Tim. Remember, well, she didn't date him for the bit. She dated him because of their shared grief over Superboy. Unpack oh, what well. that means. Hmm. <laughs> And then she's like, hmm, maybe this was a bad idea. <laughs> Shout out Wonder Girl, who I think I make a reference to once every few episodes and have still not, like, actually read a Wonder Girl story on this show because there's only a handful. 
She's not a character with a lot of stories outside of like Teen Titans. Yeah, and Teen Titans, unfortunately, Young Justice. I mean, you know, she, that yeah, might she's, be, she's on Young be worth a look. She eventually becomes the leader of the Teen Titans. I think there's a specific era of Teen Titans that I would want to read if I wanted to highlight her. Um, right. That like 2000, <laughs> 2008 period. 2007, 2008. Mm. Um, uh, that's like where it's like her, Aqua Girl, Ravager, Static, Blue Beetle, and simply Eddie at that oh. point. The weirdo team, yeah. Yes, that really weird Teen Titans lineup, that's my shit. <laughs> Ravager just trying to beat the dog shit out of Bombshell, yeah. <laughs> also, remember that Bombshell? <laughs> remember DC Bombshell, not Marvel Bombshell? Because the fact that there are two characters that were created within a few years of each other, both named Bombshell, with mixes it up in my head. It's so weird. <laughs> But there's Bombshell, the Marvel character who's friends with Miles Morales. Right. Uh, and then there's DC's Bombshell. Uh, not to be confused with the DC imprint Bombshells. Oh my goodness. <laughs> what are y'all doing? They, they really like that name, they, I mean, to be fair. Somebody yeah. there really likes Power Man 5000. <laughs> somebody who's watching some Dudley Boys matches and went, hey, wait a minute. There we go. Watch some bub your Ray Dudley. I really like, obviously we get the shot here that reveals uh, the third individual in our commuting party who was not in the Justice League Unlimited episode. Yeah, not in that episode, episode famously. Yeah. And I mean, you know, very obvious reason why uh, when you get to who this actually is. Uh, this being the pre-crisis pre Jason Todd, who is so, so very recognizable, so very distinctive, that Wendy even rec Wendy even m mistakes him for Dick for a second. Like, uh, my note here is that Jason did not have the smarts to wear pants. Um, boy, boy, was he just substitute Dick here like yeah like he didn't really have much of a discernible personality yet i like he's still a really new character yeah because uh, he becomes robin during the judas contract like that's like a pretty like at the time passover dick gives up being robin jason comes in but jason is like he's just dick too here yeah he's just dick in the sense that you know the teen titans office wants Dick Grayson, so but the, the Batman office, office needs Robin. Yes. So he he's like exists in this weird meta space here. But he Yeah. I don't even think he start he started to have like his own like distinct little hair curlies in the front yet. Um, yeah. which is kind of how you tell the difference whenever you see Dick and Jason because they have the same costume, is that Jason has these really has these two little things in the front of his hair he's got them he he has got them here it's just the wind has kind oh, of yeah. blown them around a little like you can kind of see them once we get uh inside um speaking of getting inside um jason's little comment <laughs> at uh one day here <laughs> you are the the pot calling the kettle black because <laughs> so wonder woman says uh Anyway, he's left the door open for us. Let's get inside before you two freeze. And Jason, like, does the full get a load of this guy. 
<laughs> before us freeze, before us two freeze, just like that, you two are wearing an equal amount of pants here, Jason. Yeah. Which is to say none. I don't know why they didn't, like, commit full time to him having that other costume that he gets really briefly. Have you seen it before? I have not, actually. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Because um, I know that Death in the Family gives him basically Tim's... The, the animated movie gives him basically Tim's outfit. And there have been some things that kind of play around with giving him a different outfit. Uh, yeah. You know, once he gets closer to his death, of course. What, what's very funny is that, like, they keep giving Tim his own costumes and then giving them to his brothers because his brothers wearing the old costume doesn't make any sense anymore. Right, yeah. In... Like, Teen Titans, the animated show, basically Dick has Tim's Dick, outfit. Dick also the has death in the outfit. family. Um, in Batman the Animated Series, Dick is just wearing Tim's costume. Right, and Tim gets the red outfit for the that reason. That becomes Which then Jason wears in Death in the Family, you know, the animated uh, right. short. Uh, and in uh, Under the Hood, he gets it. Under the Hood. Yeah, Under the Hood. That's the movie. Yeah. yeah. He, um, that costume is weird because they give it to Tim to make him look distinct in a story where his personality is more like Jason's. And then right. Tim starts wearing that costume for real post-Infinite Crisis. Right. Uh, and then Under the Red Hood comes out and puts Jason in Tim's costume that was created <laughs> when Tim was being used as a substitute Jason in the animated series. It's very dumb. Hey, man, maybe they should have thought out creating the original Robin's outfit better. I don't know. Maybe they should have given him, like, a pants variant, you he know? He should have had the smarts to wear pants. Oh, this is... what, what the hell is that? <laughs> Okay, oh. let, let please describe this for uh, for the uh, listeners here. We so, he's got yeah. Jason does briefly get this costume pre crisis. Um, that's uh, very jestery. Um, yeah, similar to Tim's in that it has the the whole top part is red, uh, and then has the green tight sticking underneath it. But then it has long red sleeves, green gloves. Um, and then this weird, like, triangle thing. Yeah. All, like, around the around the shoulders and neck, and then it goes up uh, to meet with his cape. Um, it's kind it, of like a... He has, like, a... I think Nightwing in the... In one of the um, Arkham games has, like, a similar cowl like this, where it's, like, yes. over his ears... And it's like a mask, but then it kind of covers his neck as well. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't hate it. Um, it at the very least, is unique to him. Yeah. It's, it's not Robin, though. Like, right. you know, it's... Yeah. I, I don't know. I, it's it's a weird look. I'll post this on, uh, on the Twitter so you guys can see it. Um, also, that's from when they briefly decided that Jason had red hair. And I've got to say, he probably should. <laughs> yeah, I think that that would help. I, I I like the idea of him him having like the white streak through his hair, mm -hmm. like nowadays. But I feel like pre you know pre death, him having red hair or dark red hair or something would help. You know, and then they just write in some retcon where it was like Bruce had him dye his hair black or wear a black wig or something, right? right. Because I, they didn't I, want to. Say there were two different Robins. 
Right, and we don't want people to be paying any special different attention to you. If it's right. a wig, that makes more sense. If he's making him dye his hair, that makes Bruce look like a fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, kid. Why not just give him a, a hood? <laughs> oh, don't worry about it. You know what people will do with that hood, Marcus? They'll just rip. <laughs> just pull it over his face. Um, yeah. Bruce also, speaking of him being a dick here, uh, he just <laughs> looks directly at Jason and says, think, think, flink, clean thoughts, chum, and then smiles. Either he's taking a special pleasure in Jason's misery, or he's not thinking clean thoughts. Bruce is that's, absolutely that's staring at Diana's ass. He is yeah. 100%. There's a little ice slope up to the entrance of the fortress, and you get a shot of them being below her, so... Yeah, I mean, and Bruce. this is a particularly like dump trucked out Wonder Woman. Yeah, this is not like the skirt that she wears re- more recently. This is specifically like the hot, you pants, know, Linda Carter ass cheeks. Yeah, and she is cheeked up. It's crazy. It's like yeah, it's like those um those officially licensed Mexican Spider Man comics where they gave Quincy <laughs> a giant ass. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> If they ever sub, if they ever do those, like if they ever lost media, pull that together the same way they have for the Japanese Spider-Man, the Toei Spider-Man. Some somehow, I have to find a way to read those. Why do they do that? Those artists were like just taking liberties. Well, she was so popular that they kept her alive after she died in that specific region. So, like, yeah, I wonder why. Yeah. Could it be that you gave her? A giant ass. Double cheeked up. Also, I love the canon the canon fact that Mary Jane has, and I quote, a dump truck ass. As per a uh, black cat. As yeah, per literally. One Felicia Hardy. Yeah. Felicia Hardy's like, damn, like I didn't you look at my fit. Like, I didn't think your dump truck ass would fit in my suit, Mary Jane. What? Canon dialogue, and the the author literally went. I'm so glad I got away with that. I, he's like, I didn't think they'd let me do that. I wrote that <laughs> not thinking that they would let me do it. <laughs> uh, but they they head into the Fortress of Solitude, which again, pre-crisis Fortress of Solitude is not like what we think of the Fortress of Solitude as. It's not the big palace of ice. It's still in the yeah. Arctic, but it's it just looks like a big castle. It's more like the Batcave. Yes. Like, kind of in the sense where rather than it being full of, you know, Kryptonian sculpture and all of that stuff, there are some things that are notable, which we'll talk about later. But you can see, like, kind of as you're going through the next page, there's a train that's there. There's, like, a submarine that's above them. Uh, There's, like, some various things inside of glass cases that are in here as well. Uh, there's a, uh, there is a, there is a dinosaur in here too, uh, it looks like. So it very much is kind of like more of a tribute to earth than it is a tribute to Krypton, which is what it becomes a bit later. Yeah. Um, so they head in and Jason says, this is a big place, isn't it? I bet there's some scary stuff in here. And Bruce tells him, well, if you make a profession out of that mask, you'll probably see a lot worse. Incidentally, Diana, what kind of present did you decide to get him? 
He's like, I'm not saying anything. He'll hear it and spoil the surprise. Here, but he's not even anywhere near us. He won't. Oh, right. Superman. Forgot. Um, and yet, these couple things, or the thing that we find out is that Bruce um, paid a horticulturalist to pay, to breed a new strain of rose called the Krypton. That's. That's a lot. Compared to in the compared to in the animated version where he just got him cash, like this is mm-hmm. this is an approach. This yeah. is definitely an approach. And Wonder Woman, I think, gives him a rose in the gives him the flower in this show. Yeah, it's swapped out. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Bruce is like, yeah, I just I just got him money, yeah. <laughs> which is very yeah. in line for that characterization of Bruce. Yeah, it fits with the more modern approach for Bruce. But as far as like kind of this era, I think it is nice that. Bruce is kind of, like, nice to Superman. You know, I, I like that the two of them are friends in this time period. Yeah, they're... But... Oh, yeah? No, it's like their relationship changes a lot over time, but they are, like, so decidedly... Like, the three of them here are so decidedly, like, close. Yeah. I also like that he, right after... Right after 1D mentions that he has super hearing, Bruce just kind of says it out loud... Yeah. Which makes me think that Bruce is, like, the type of person that's, like, doesn't understand the concept of gift-giving. Like, he he told Jason and Dick that, like, Santa wasn't real. Like, the first Christmas, he was the ty- he's the type of parent that goes, Santa didn't get that for you, I did. I got that for you, yes. Well, here's the thing. Especially when you consider, like, Jason was, like, 13 or 14 when he becomes Robin. It's like, he looks at him, he's like, hey, you don't still, like, fucking believe in Santa Claus, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> And whereas Superman does believe in Santa Claus. <laughs> um, and so they find Superman standing stone still uh, with the vines and uh, flowers of the Black Mercy wrapped around him. And like, what the fuck is this? And it's like, he's breathing, but like only a little. And Wonder Woman's like, this thing feels like it has magic in it. And Jason says, Bruce, listen, if something's done this to Superman, then we find have to find out what it is as quickly as possible without wasting time worrying. Check those wrappings thoroughly and be careful. Um, they're like, well, okay, we can't take this thing off of him. He is in some sort of trance, uh, which brings us back to, uh, back to Krypton. And, uh, Cal is just staring out the window, uh, and his wife comes to get him, and she, uh, she's like, what are you doing? Everyone's gone home. He says, oh, it's nothing. It just would have been nice if my father had been here tonight. Um, and I, I want to, like, touch on this because and we're going we're gonna to kind of go past, like, here, because he does. He and his wife talk and go upstairs, essentially. But yeah. modern interpretations of Jor-El are a lot more favorable to him than this is. Right. This is... This is a lot. There's a lot about Jor-El. Because the next day he does go to see him. And Jor-El... There's no two ways about it. He looks like fucking Steve Bannon. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we need to to get into some more of Jor-El's kind of interesting approaches here 
first, he uh, he wanted he talks about how Cal should have named uh, Orna after his after Laura after his mother, which is like he, it's, that's such a parent thing to do. It's like oh, you know, you could have named it after you could have named it like my name too or something like that right. you could have named it something else in this case but, specifically it's you should have named her after your dead mother it's like yeah what but then we have him meeting the two evilest people i have ever seen in my life just in his house and he's just like yeah my friends were chilling you know and we find out like literally after that that they're a part of the Sword of Rao sect, which is an insane name, already tells you that this is not, like, th this is not right. Like, you know, this is right. not a good thing. Yeah. Uh, he's the leader of the old Krypton movement, and, to which Cal goes, you're really going through with that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Please, please read this next bit. Just this whole next bit. That Jor-El says here. Someone has to. Look around you, Cal. What's happened to Krypton? There's the drug traffic and the glamour salts and hell blossom coming in from Errol. There's racial trouble with those Vathlo Island immigrants. So, Jor-El wants to make Krypton great again. <laughs> I was just about to say, he's the... I didn't realize it, but subconsciously I did the voice of the, uh, the senator from Metal Gear Rising. Oh my god, yeah. Senator Armstrong... <laughs> <laughs> but no like literally he is literally tapped Texas. in he is literally tapped into space fox news he's literally tapped into space uh one america network Tap like he's literally it. watching those he's not just watching it he is guest appearing on it oh yeah yeah he is there he's the one who's calling in occasionally sitting there tucker carlson staring at him with with his least confused look you know, agreeing with him and everything like that. Looking bow tie. There's too many damn immigrants coming over from those Valtho Islands. We have to make Krypton great again. Wow. Alan Moore, I am I am shocked. Like, 30 years before Donald Trump was elected president. Yeah. Well, even you think about, like, how Watchmen is kind of an approach to, like, uh, conservative politics like Watchmen at least is separate enough from anything that exists out there mm -hmm. but to take Jor-El who up until this point I mean Jor-El's appeared in comics before they've had like Silver Age stories where Jor-El has popped up and has spanked Superman or like has popped up and has like said something to him or whatever you know the super dickery Superman yeah. comics but Jor-El being like someone who's relatively characterless and then immediately coming out with the Reaganomics, the hyper-conservative, the, like, you know, going into the Bush era, going into the Trump era, very much timeless type of character, thought process of, like, an extreme conservative is quite a shock. Yeah, I mean, because, like, Jor-El, like, in previous appearances, is just Superman's dad, the wise scientist from Krypton who smartly sent his son to Earth to save his life. And here, it's just like, he's just this bitter old man. It's just fucking asshole. 
Yeah, he even specifically kind of notes, like, he, he disses his son first. He disses him for grubbing for rocks in the Candor Crater. Uh, yeah, for then he also, he also, you know, gives us a little bit of exposition as to what's happened in this thing, which is basically he would, he did what he did. He called out, you know, Krypton exploding. He right. was wrong, but unlike sort of in the animated version where that's just kind of the end of it, it's like he got discredited as a scientist, you know, Lila died as well. And also he's oh, just Lara. like, man. Or Laura, sorry. Laura died as well. There's like, a lot Lila of L's. Is, yeah, Lila is Cal's wife here. Right. Uh, speaking of Lila, can, can we talk about how many LLs that Clark has bagged over the years? I mean, we're talking Lois Lane, Lori Lamorris. And now Lila L? I guess, I guess her last yeah. name would be L because she's... Yeah, L. technically. Yeah. But yeah, yeah like he, he mentioned straight up he says that you know i was forced to resign from the science council because i was wrong he mentions that you know, there was an eating sickness that killed laura which is really rough honestly and then he just goes you know you know what like society is tearing itself apart you know all this stuff is happening and you know they're also campaigning to release the phantom zone criminals what's with that unfair imprisonment quotations Another yeah, sort of unreasonably severe punishment, bro. Have yeah. you seen the Phantom Zone? It is unreasonable punishment. Yeah, the Phantom Zone is a crazy place to put somebody. Yeah. Um, like I don't know if you've watched any of Young Justice season four, but like, I have not now. But okay, there's a prolonged amount of time they spend talking about the Phantom Zone. Like it becomes like a, a location that characters are in and so it's like okay the phantom zone is fucked up yeah it's like you want to just stare out at emptiness forever yeah but yeah just if you think they do it is definitely one of those things where you get even just this whole page very much you can tell like the politics of alan moore and the approach that alan moore wants to take with a with a continuing krypton i mean you have Cal even say that you know he wishes he wishes that krypton had exploded after all because his father has been consumed by you know space oa space one america news network yeah, he and says, you know, this impression that like you know all this stuff is tearing krypton apart and we need to go back to the good old days where we could put people in the phantom zone and people wouldn't protest <laughs> all these damn protesters Getting in my way about the Phantom Zone. <laughs> uh, yeah, he says, sometimes I think you were right. I think you wish you were right. I think you wish Krypton had exploded after all. And just gets up and walks away. And then we just get like, there's no other words on this page. Yeah, just. Smashes a bird with his, uh, with his cane and just sobs into his hand. Uh, back in the real world, uh, Batman and Wonder Woman and Robin are trying to piece together what what it was, that's what this thing is, how it got to Clark, and they they're like, okay, somebody sent him this thing as a gift, and he opened it, thinking that you know, unaware that it could harm him, 
And then the voice from off page says, How remarkable. You, you animals really are almost intelligent, are you? That's exactly what happened. Except for one or two minor details. And fucking Mongol is here, and this motherfucker is hench. Yeah, he this takes up the whole panel. <laughs> yeah, he's so huge. He's, this is a big bastard. Like, one woman looks alarmed at the... Like, what the fuck is this? First I one. like how even Bruce looks kind of still bothered <laughs> in the next couple of panels. Yeah. He's like, what the fuck? They make people this big? <laughs> what are they feeding them? Like, Damn, son, where'd they find you? We need you on the offensive line at Gotham University. This is like when Omos first debuts <laughs> in WWE in 2021. Like, Who is this big fucker? Uh, and they're like, what? Like, Jason says, what is it? <laughs> not who is that, not who is he. He says, what is it? Because he doesn't know. Jason is from the mean streets of Gotham City, New Jersey. He ain't never seen no shit like this before. He's two months in the job and he's met his first alien and it's gigantic. <laughs> A year ago, he was stealing tires. Like. He wasn't built for this. Like. Was, not, was not prepared for this. Uh, and so he, he, he info dumps on them. He begins to pontificate. Uh, Do you like it? It's called the Black Mercy. I traveled a great way into the Tangled Zones to locate it. Oh, and please tell the little yellow creature to stop shuffling. It distracts me. By this, he means Jason, who is trying yeah. to, like, move away. <laughs> <laughs> he sees him out of his periphery, and he's like, hey, cut that shit out, man. Jason's about two minutes from taking the mask off and throwing the cape at Bruce. Like. <laughs> Jason is about to dive through a barbershop window. He's like, fuck this. <laughs> uh, Bruce is like, what the fuck does this thing do, man? He says, it's something between a plant and attaches itself to its victims in a form of symbiosis feeding from their bioaura. It gives them their heart's desire. I'd say that was fair, wouldn't you? It's telepathic. It reads them like a book, and it feeds them a logical simulation of the happy ending they desire. Of course, its victims could shrug it off. They just don't want to. I delivered it to him, and when I was certain it had done its work, I followed it along the teleportation channel. Poor little creature. I wonder where he thinks he is. Perhaps he's playing happily as a child in whatever sordid aboriginal backwater he was raised in or bouncing on his mother's knee. That would be nice, wouldn't it? To think of him carefree and contented forever. And Bruce goes, What are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the very baller line, he says, If you don't That's good. I'm the new manager around here. That's really good. Can I just say, like, he's, he squats yes. to Bruce. 
to say this. Like he's been towering over everyone and he literally just squats to eye level and just stares him right in the eye and it's like, you don't know my name, then you don't need to. This is how how those dudes who copy paste uh, uh, tweets who are like, don't worry about it, little bro. At grown men on Twitter think they look. Yeah. I also think it's important to note here uh, another little difference from the animated version uh, that Mongol in the animated version had a more cynical approach to Superman's uh, um, illusion, specifically thinking that Superman would be taking over the world in his own imagination. Right. Which definitely plays into what the difference is between what people reading this comic back then might have thought about Superman's imagination versus what people watching Justice League or even existing to this day might think about Superman's imagination right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, like, he's like, uh, yeah, wh- I bet this fucking Boy Scout is sitting about think- sitting thinking about being at home with his family. What a loser. <laughs> <laughs> what a dork. He loves his parents. <laughs> he says, uh, I know, for example, that your society makes distinctions on a basis of gender and age. Perhaps then you could advise me. Which of you would it be polite to kill first? Very cool. Very good line. Yeah. I will say it's nice that he didn't immediately discriminate and attack uh, Wonder Woman. I mean, I would call him a feminist if it weren't for what he says later. (laughs) Jason is in the back like... (laughs) Hands on his face. He wants to go home. I like the shot here where Wonder Woman and Batman kind of look to each other. Like this sort of wordless, you know, I'll fight him, you help Clark kind of yeah. thought. Like, that you can only really get from decades of storytelling. Right. Uh, Mongol takes off his gloves, puts them down. And again, he's like fully like squatted down. Like, almost in, like, a Spider-Man pose. Yeah. He'd be cheeked up if he didn't have a flat ass. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, you know, it's it's out there. You he's know, not, I had to... He's not hitting the squats. He's not... Uh, <laughs> no hip abductors here. Just... just. Yeah. All, all upper body. No leg day. Yeah. Wonder Woman gives him, gives him a good one. Jumps right in puts one right on his chin and hurts her hand. She hits him so hard. Yeah. And he goes, thank but, you. I think that's answered my question. What were you going to say? I noticed that it only barely gives him a bruise and he yeah. kind of just scratches his chin like, okay. Right. <laughs> that's, that's what you got. Okay. This will be fun. Yeah. Back in Clark's mind, uh, he's at the hospital checking on uh, checking on his aunt Allura, uh, Kara's mom, uh, and she is like hysterical, screaming, crying. Uh, she's like, I. Uh, he's like, what happened to? What's going on? I I was looking after Van, so I had to bring him, uh, and he's like, what happened to Kara? Uh, and they're like, uh, Kal-El, you're the girl's cousin? He says, 
Yeah, and she says, I'm afraid Kara Zor-El was attacked earlier this evening by some rioters armed with some slash sticks. She's critical. And... Slash sticks. Can we can we talk about slash sticks? Can we talk about... Because I love science fiction when they take, like, things that are very clearly violent or very clearly rough and they give them, like, weird science fiction-y names... Yeah. Like, it, it brings me back to Attack of the Clones, where they had death sticks. Yes. For, for cigarettes. Which is incredibly on the nose. That's, <laughs> I would argue slash sticks is more, the death sticks is more on the nose than slash stick, which is presumably a sword. Right. Or a knife. Something like that. Uh, and it's, they found her with a, a, a thing around her neck and it's a picture of her of Clark's dad and it says uh Jacks are more than 20 years in limbo just because it doesn't hurt doesn't mean it's not it isn't torture free phantom zone exiles now uh it's like the anti-phantom zone campaigners see the phantom zone ray as an instrument of torture your father invented it that makes the house of L unpopular in certain quarters as your cousin discovered it's like and so he goes in to check on Kara, and Kara is fucked. Yeah. Like, Our one shot of Supergirl in this comic, and unfortunately she is not she's not doing too well. Yeah, it looks like her fingers are broken. Uh her looks like her other hand or her other arm is at the very least like bandaged up. Um She's got a bunch of stitches or staples like in the side of her head, which has been shaved because they had to they had to shave her head to get the stitches in or get the staples in because she was split open, presumably. Like there's only so much violence you can show with the Comments Code Authority. This kind of circumvents that by showing us the aftermath of it. Like, yeah, her eyes are swollen shut. Like, Kara is just soundly been beaten. Yeah. And the, like, Clark comes out to talk to Van, who has been distracted by the nurse playing uh, playing with action figures with him. I have no clue how old Vanel is supposed to be. Yeah, it, it, probably just, like, kind of early teens, maybe. Yeah, maybe, like, 11 or 12, because he's so yeah. tall for a kid. Good point, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he call Cal calls his wife and is like, you know, explains what happened. It's like, Allura's going to stay here at the hospital with her. They'll be safe. But you need to go straight to Atomic Town. We'll meet you Atomic there. Atomic Town. <laughs> yeah. This is so, like, kind of perfect 80s sci-fi uh, yeah. in terms of the way everything is named. And everything's played pretty straight here. Um, one thing that I really... Uh, I kept thinking as I read this is that in the adaptation in the Justice League Unlimited episode, Clark is so soundly happy here. Mm. In this, it's like this is the log. Uh, Mongol says this is the logical conclusion of the thing that would make him happiest. The thing that would make him happiest is if Krypton never exploded. But he just because the root of it is the thing that would make him happiest he does not mean that he is happy. That's an interesting take. I I have to ask you, which do you prefer? Do you like the Black Mercy of the Animated version where, you know, as we'll see, you know, 
someone else breaking you from it is what it takes to you know, have the logical conclusion happen versus here where it's just pretty much the entire process is going through his mind and his own mind is sort of creating that separation. Right. Yeah. He's kind of realizing that, um, that, you know, he's not in reality. Um, or more that this wish doesn't give you, isn't going to give him the happiness he wants. Right. And it creates this sort of disconnect between it's, himself and his psyche. It's very house of M. Um, in that way or house of M is very this i should say because mm. in house of M, it's like yeah everybody got the thing they wanted the most but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're happy um right like everybody the only person who's like objectively happy in the house of M reality is peter parker right uh well peter parker scott summers and emma frost <laughs> <laughs> they got it for sure because they scott got what they need are just married and scott's a shield agent <laughs> like his life did not change much but yeah. like Magneto is notably miserable. Uh T'Challa's life does not change at all. Right. He's just not yet married to Aurora. That's it. That's all that's <laughs> changed. Is that they're dating but not married yet. Right. Um Oh, actually, they're not married yet in uh in um they're not married yet in that continuity until I think World War Hulk around Civil. World War Hulk is when they get married. They get married during Civil War, and I remember because Civil War takes a pause. Uh, hmm. It's so they get married right after that because what happens? Okay, is House of M leads right into the arc in um, X Men where they've got to bury all those kids. Yeah, right the one ninety eight. Right at the end of that. Uh, Carol Danvers comes and tries to get their help for Civil War. Okay. And so T'Challa and Aurora get married during Civil War. Uh, there's a BET special inside the comic about that. It's very weird. Comics <laughs> got very weird in the 2000s. Have, you, have we made yeah. it clear through the, through the course of these 25 episodes that comics in the 2000s were weirder than maybe they had ever been before? Well, considering how they invited Eminem to uh, uh, Krakoa in, you know, the 2020s, you know, I'd say we pretty much stuck around to a degree. That that kind of stuff pretty much stuck around to a degree. The Hellfire Gala in 2020, last year's Hellfire Gala. Uh, yeah. Was hilarious. 2021. Yeah, okay. 2021 Hellfire Gala is so funny to me. The Marauders are just out back shooting dice. <laughs> <laughs> The Hellions crashed the party. Fucking run the jewels were there for some reason. <laughs> they were. I remember reading it and going, is that fucking killer Mike? What? <laughs> Kevin Feige shows up to interview Cyclops. Like, maybe I'll put you in a movie. And no. Goes, no. No, I don't think you will. Um so, Speaking of stuff that isn't in an adaptation, for sure, uh, yeah, as we move on here. Um, yeah, Cal takes his son, Van, um, to, uh, like, hey, we're going to go to Atomic Town and uh, and meet your, and hang out with your, with your grandparents. Um, and, you know, they're, they get pulled over. Or like the the officer pulls them through and it's like, hey yeah, you guys gotta go this way. You got a detour because there's a big torch procession of those sort of Rao characters coming through here. Part of the old Krypton rally. 
I, my God, we get a shot of the Sword of Rao folks, and it appears that they are literally carrying swords by the blade with burning hilts, walking through the street like they're like, burning, I don't know, I don't want to say. Burning cross-shaped hilts at that. Yeah. I don't want to say that Alan Moore is trying to invoke images of the, the Ku Klux Klan here, but I I'm feel like he kind of is. I feel like Moore and Gibbons were, they weren't trying to do it specifically, but they definitely weren't not trying to do it, you know? Right. They they, they literally said some of those that work forces are the same <laughs> burn classes. Some of those that legislate against, you know, uh, uh, people's rights are the same that burn crosses. That's literally what they're saying here. Some of those who advocate for the Phantom Zone burn crosses. Right. Uh, and so uh, Van's like, hey, Dad, what's happening? He's like, oh, it's, uh, it's like a circus parade. Van, everything's fine. Meanwhile, everything is not fine. Wonder Woman is getting her ass whooped. She gets thrown through a concrete wall into uh, into the armory, and he said, uh, "Mongol says, well, you're certainly lasting longer than I anticipated. You're a female, I think. You wouldn't be the Kryptonian's mate by any chance.'" And she says, "Just good friends. Put a pin in that. Mm. We're gonna come back to this later. Yeah, because." <laughs> Mm. Y'all can't see it, but I'm making a face. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll put a pin in it. Just good friends. Yeah. Come back to that. Uh, and so she uh, she grabs this big gun. <laughs> Mongol again, baller as shit, says, "Oh dear, is that a neural impactor? Do they still make those? I'd advise you try the plasma disruptor." disruptor. It's smaller, more of a female's weapon. And she tells him to go to hell! Literally the exact... This is line for line in the actual comic, uh, in the cartoon as well. Mind you, there's a big blast in front of the hell part. Yeah. But she does tell him dot 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 go, go to, to hell! hell. <laughs> <laughs> and take this piece of trash to hell with you! Yeah! Take that black mercy and take it to hell. With you. Take the dog to hell. The dying smells trash. Peace, peace. You piece of, you piece of trash. You're getting bits off. Don't worry. Just oh, ignore us. Diana, but she's voiced by 1999 The Rock. Yeah. Actually, The Rock voicing Mongol would be hilarious. I feel like he should have done Mongol instead of Black Adam. And obviously, Black Adam, the hierarchy of power in the DC universe about to change in, in 2022. I'm still not seeing it. Him as Mongol, I could see it. Yeah. You know? Him as Mongol would rule. Uh, I mean, he can still do it. Just voice him. It's fine. Yeah. And then he could just be like 2001 himself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he pulls off with Superman. He says... You mean to tell me this jabroni's name is Cal? <laughs> you were going with that for a second, but it went so well. 
Tell Cal. Cal? <laughs> Tell Cal to go into the Los Angeles Kings locker room. <laughs> Tell him to get a hockey stick, a hockey mask, and a dirty chuck. <laughs> So Mongol is not phased by this in the slightest, and Bruce and Jason are trying to figure something out. And they're like, we got to focus on reviving Superman because whatever's going on through there is way out of our league. Uh, and he says he gently caresses Cal's face, and he says, "Superman, Cal, we're in serious trouble, old friend. You've got to wake up. That's all, Cal. Just wake up." And in his dream. One of the sort of row jokers is yelling, Wake up, Krypton! To the danger that faces you! It's like, excuse me, I can't get my floater through. You'll have to take another route, brother. The divine Loram has just introduced our chairman. He's just, chairman? Wake up to the rot that infects your cities! Wake up to the carnage that is almost upon you! I once knew Krypton that was an. I once knew a Krypton that was noble and unspoiled, where proud towers rose against an untainted sky. And now today I see that splendor threatened with destruction. Yes, the chairman of the board, Jor-El, who immediately starts getting heckled by protesters. <laughs> asshole! 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 <laughs> Like, I find it so funny that immediately they're just like, oh, is the planet going to blow up Jor-El? Ooh. Like, why should we listen to, why should we listen to the guy that said that the planet was going to explode? Is a strong argument to immediately discount Jor-El. Also worth mentioning that the whole the planet is going to explode thing was like, was like nearly 40 years ago in this timeline. Right. But you know something? I mean, you know, if someone's gonna like that'd be that's like how people bring up like the Trump casino right oh, now, yeah. or they bring yeah. up stuff like that. Like, you know what? Like, why should we listen to you when this thing that you did that was supposed to be good? Yeah, you know, like the comedy thing. It's like, how do you bankrupt a casino? It's like, how do you predict like the planet exploding when it doesn't for forty years? <laughs> like, yeah. I will say this: you remember all of those people. Uh, around like 2012 that were like oh yeah the earth is certainly going to explode or the you know oh, uh, yeah. the end times are coming could you name any of those people like by name hmm. good point I, yeah I, I, I could not yeah <laughs> but the dude who was like the the you know the the planet will end the rapture will come on May blah 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 2011 I don't remember that guy I remember his right. name I don't remember his face I just remember that he was like a preacher or some shit Mm. That's it. Uh, I, could not, I didn't know that dude from a hole in the wall. <laughs> I guess like Krypton has had less societal issues to the point where some crazy guy raving about the planet exploding and being wrong. Right. It would, only like, happened the in. one time. <laughs> yeah. Like it happens the one time and then everything's fine. And then it's like, well, wait a minute, you know? Yeah. Like also of note, he is the same person who's in charge of the, uh, um, Phantom Zone stuff. So he would be like a Trump-like figure 
in the sense where it's like he's this guy who has this one bad thing about him and then he has these other bad things that you can find as you dig through his history that are also pretty kind of prevalent to who he is yeah the hits just keep coming with good old does that does that make cowl like baron baron trump does that make like Laura like you know? <laughs> uh, does that make like Laura like Ivana Trump like or like uh, I don't I don't Melania Trump like as far as figures go like uh, who is who is Hunter Biden in this example? Oh Lord, I don't even want to know. Who is who is just just fucking partying it up? Yeah. Who's like, what? Who is there? What? Doing whatever they feel like, yeah. Every time I look, I'm like, damn, that guy is doing whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Just doing whatever evil side quests he can possibly think of. This dude is just doing anything. But yeah, obviously, uh, Cal very distraught about all of this. We get the mention that 20 years ago, specifically, was when, you know, the planet was supposed to explode or when Jor-El projected it. The, the 20 years ago is when Laura died. Ah, okay. That's why he says, your grand, he says, father, that's grandfather Jor-El. Why is he shouting about the world ending? And he says, your grandfather's world ended 20 years ago. Let's get out of here. I think it might be up in the air because like it, it, we get the one mention of, uh, Laura dying. Mm-hmm. And he says, um, he says that eating disease killed her 20 years yeah that's a good point actually because i was thinking it was like sort of a cutoff where it's like krypton supposed was supposed to explode at this point and then after that everything went wrong for jor-el really quickly and then that's kind of where he's had the time to sit with all of that but yeah i think it i think it does fit at the same time so Clark yeah, he wouldn't have been a terrible father that whole time, yeah. Right. Clark definitely wouldn't have been 20 during this story. Yeah, good point. Um, and, uh, you know, he he looks over, uh, Van does while they're driving, he says, this isn't how we get to grandfather. He says, no, um, you know, your dad's just a little upset right now. Um, I just need to go somewhere quiet to think. Um, and so he goes out to the crater. And Vanell has to face the uh, poor Vanell has to face uh, how small he is in the universe. Yeah, in the center of the Candor crater, they're sitting there, and he's just like, uh, "Like, why are we here?" He says, um, "I don't. There's not a lot out here. I don't like it. It's like when you drive from California to Vegas, like especially at night." And it's just dark, and you get to that stretch of just desert. Mm. And it's just just pitch black, you and the stars. And it's like, man, we are so small. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so Vance, like, I don't like this. And he's just like, you know, there's something wrong. You know when you get a bad feeling? And I'm sorry, I'm not talking sense. You're too young to understand. And he says, uh, Van, this feeling, it's, I, Van, please know, I know that this won't make sense, but you're my son. I was there at your birth. I'll always love you. Always. But Van, I, 
I don't think you're real. Which and we get here this great shot where immediately as he's starting to come to that realization, the background starts to fade. It starts to wash out, actually, which is a really neat effect, actually. Like, yeah. it's not just it starts to white out. Like, it starts to bend, like, with the wind almost. Yeah. And so the 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 world is fading out back into reality as Bruce pulls on the Black Mercy and it starts to come loose. And uh, I really, just to point this out, I really like the last two shots here. Like, they have a couple of these frames in the comic. We'll see another one on, I believe, the uh, uh, one of the last pages. But the last one here with Bruce pulling at the Black Mercy and Cal reaching out for Van is, like, a really strong kind of visual. Yeah. Like... It's almost like Clark is kind of still trying to hold on to the Black Mercy just a little bit in his mind. Right. Still and that's like the last to, little bit. Yeah, still trying to hold on to this life. Still trying to hold on to this family he's, he not just has found. Because this point that we are reading um, like from here, this whole story has been unfolding to Clark to what for what feels like years. Yeah. Um, so he, to him, this has been real. This is his family. Van is his son. Uh, and just in an instant, all of that is gone. Um, and so Bruce pulls, the Black Mercy comes loose uh, and now grabs hold to him. Uh, and it's, uh, they are in the dark and familiar streets of Old Gotham, walking home after the snow. This is the sound of his father's laughter, the smell of his mother's perfume. And then the man with the weasel face steps from the shadows, carrying an ugly-looking gun, and he fires, and he misses. And Thomas Wayne takes the gun away from him with no trouble at all. The police lead the man away, and the child is safe in his mother's arms. The dark cloud of terror that had flapped squeaking through his mind breaks up, dispersing forever. He is content. Which, you know, it's not a new take that the thing that Bruce Wayne wants the most is for his parents to have never died. Yeah. Um, but, like, again, like, the very prose way that it's put, um, I think that it's it's really, like a, like, a perfect, like, way to put how he would feel, which is content. Yeah especially kind of intercut like between because the black mercy takes him and immediately starts putting those images in his head right and jason is standing over him like pretty helplessly trying to figure out how best to wake him up or trying to figure out how best to get him out like he's he's pretty overwhelmed seeing this happening yeah jason is freaking out and behind him stands super and a very, very striking picture of Superman at that. Like, you don't really see... Like, the thing about this that I really like is, like, you get this sort of... I don't know, this sort of un-Superman-like expression on his face. His, yeah. his, eye, his face is obscured. There's red coming out from the sides. If I didn't... I don't know if this has ever happened in comics before... But this kind of reminds me of like the telltale image that is used for Superman being angry these days, yes. which is his eyes being full of like heat vision. Like like 
you see the heat vision kind of bursting out of his eyes right, as he's angry. Like smoke, but especially this yeah. pose where he's completely flexed. He's standing sh- shoulders wide, uh, furious, and he asks Jason, who did this to me? He says, I, I don't know, uh, big yellow guy? He's through there hurting Wonder Woman now. Superman, are, are you okay? You look sort of... Uh, this Mongol. Mongol! And, like, it's so cool because he's yelling. Like, I head back, yells so loud that Jason falls over covering his ears. The text has completely filled the panel. Like, it's a bright pink background with bright blue text that says Mongol. And it's shaped around Superman yelling and pushing to the edge of the page. Every word, yeah. every letter is like slamming into each other. It's so good. It's such a good use of the space. Like the O is the center and everything else is kind of wrapped around the O. And there's also kind of like sort of sound things coming out of him as well. Yeah. So there's just a lot to look at at this page, even if the background and even if everything is kind of pulled away. Like the next page as well, where he flies and you see the fush following him too. Yeah. With like his face kind of twisted in rage, like there's a like the onomatopoeia here is particularly strong. Yes. Uh, yeah. Whoosh. And he takes off, and Mongol. We cut away to Mongol, who's looking in the direction Superman just yelled from, and it says he hears a voice like Armageddon shouting his name, and he starts to turn. He knows he has perhaps less than half a second in which to defend himself. He starts to reach towards his armor's weapon systems, letting the unconscious woman f- crumple to the floor. But the rock of far wall seems to ripple outward in a sudden cascade of power, and a 400-mile-an-hour wind slams into him like a steam hammer as big as the world, and he knows that it is far too late. And Superman just plows right into him. Uh, while this is happening, Jason has taken Mongol's gauntlets and used them to pull the Black Mercy off of Bruce. Um... Superman says, get up. Get up, you vermin. Do you understand what you did to me? Perfectly. I fashioned a prison that you could not leave without giving up your heart's desire. Escaping it might have been like tearing off your own arm. And now, I'm going to kill you anyway. Happy birthday, Kryptonian. I give you oblivion. And Superman's eyes are completely red. He's burn and blast him dead in the chest uh with his heat vision another page that is very directly a- adapted into the animated version yes. right down to the text as well i mean you get here and we'll, we'll talk about it a bit more in a sec but he blasts him into the zoo uh yeah. the kryptonian zoo which we can talk about more in a sec but yeah i really the the look on superman's face here where he's about to burn him for, you know, the choice that Mongol's given him to give him his favorite Elder Scrolls game, uh, is very powerful. Like, he looks just, like, again, twisted in rage. You know, his eyes filled with the heat vision, which, again, like, you know, is is a very distinctively un-Superman-like look. You can tell that, like, there is this different situation going on. Like, this isn't just 
Superman has like escaped from something and now he's gonna fight somebody. This is Superman out for revenge in a yeah. sense, in a way that I don't think we see quite often. Because from where he's standing, you gave me this family and then took them away from me. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Jason uh, has taken. Jason has taken the Black Mercy, shoved it in the gauntlet, wrapped it in his cape, and uh, is now scaling scaling up to where they are to try and find it. Uh, yeah, I got the Jake the Snake bag on him. Yes! He's got Damien in there. Uh, also, I, I missed this before, but Mongol screaming is like kind of impressed across the panel of Jason as he's trying to figure out where to find them. Like, again, you know, the heat heat vision isn't really shown as being this sort of, like, dangerous thing in this way all that often. It's usually just, like, you know, shown in blast or something. It's not like, oh, you're burning someone's skin away. Yeah. Like, in this time period of comics. Right. And as they fight, like they fight and fight and fight, and then Mongol says, You insufferable little speck. You hurt me. You hurt me! You should have stayed in whatever happy fantasy the Black Mercy granted you. He says, Happy? Happy? And they just, like, just start scrapping it out. Just fully like dynamic superhero panels yeah right, yeah brian takiyama just just throwing soup bones and he uh superman and superman and mongo just just fight and fight and fight through this he says or the narrator goes i spit out suns muscles shift like continental plates ro roiling under a hide of jaundiced leather Becoming overexcited, three sentient puddles from Minrod 4 evaporate completely, leaving a faint odor of gasoline. In the chamber of archives, a machine with a brain made of light is counting the distant pulsars. Within ten feet of its algebraic reverie, alien engines of fury grind together unnoticed. Their enmity can only be measured in the skipped heartbeats of dis distant seismographs. Both indestructible, each damages the other. Both irresistible each finds himself thwarted. Surrender is not a possibility. Uh, Jason is trying to find them, and more things from the Kryptonian Zoo are jumping on his leg. <laughs> he said, hey, fuck, stop, damn it! And so <laughs> Jason gets all the way to where they are, only to find they have now crashed into a different part of the floor. <laughs> All this, all this while he's carrying the Black Mercy. Yeah. You know. Um, and as they fight, Superman looks up and sees the statue of his mother and father holding Krypton. And pauses for... More specifically second. looks at Jor-El, actually. You yes, can see a close-up on Jor-El. Yeah. And when he pauses, Mongol smokes him. Just gives him a solid left hand right to the chin. Uh, knocks him on his ass. Says, there. Do you know I almost believed you were going to kill me? How stupid of you to hesitate like that. Not a mistake that I'll make, I assure you. And Jason goes, uh, excuse me, but I think this is yours. Almost intelligent, huh? And drops the black mercy on him from above. 
and we get to see what it looks like to him. From his perspective, he knocked the Black Mercy away and killed Jason with a blast of with a laser blast. Then gra- then beheads Superman. I really like how I talked about this before, but these panels are kind of directly parallel to each other. Like even to Mongol's placement in it, like Mongol slapping away the Black Mercy on the left side, but, you know, he's facing to the to the right. And on the right side, he got the Black Mercy attached to him. Jason is jumping down and he's facing to the left. Like they are directly kind of side by side to each other. Right. And then the last panel on the left is uh, him. Sta- it says, uh, and then he places it upon a spike, uh, it being Superman's head. And goes up yeah. to trample a world, carrying it before him, his hideous standard. Uh, him standing high and triumphant, juxtaposed against him standing, against him laid on the ground, eyes wide open, mouth agape, slack jawed, beaten. Yeah. It's over one way or another, basically. In his mind, the fight between himself and Superman and all the people there is over. And on the other side, it's over, but in a completely different perspective. Him on the ground and him being the one beaten. Right. Uh, And then, uh, you know, later, Superman asks, is asking Batman, uh, how do you feel? He says, I'm still a little shaky. It was so strange. I was married to Kathy Kane and we had a teenage daughter. So Kathy Kane, uh, just a little... uh, yeah, a little bit of an in-joke from Moore. Uh, Kathy Kane and her niece, Betty Kane, uh, who was originally Batgirl, with a dash in it as opposed to Batgirl being Barbara Gordon, they literally only existed to be love interests for the original dynamic duo, but were written completely out of existence a decade ago because of an editorial change. Uh, the exact same editorial change that got rid of Batmite and also got rid of Ace the Bat Hound for a time, which I find kind of funny that whatever editorial changes were made, they saw Batman having a, a girlfriend as unrealistic as him having a fourth dimensional mite following him around. And also him having a dog as equally unreasonable. Yeah. <laughs> this man is a loser. <laughs> no girlfriend, <These> no pets. <laughs> These two actually, um, the exact, this editorial change was actually what led to Barbara Gordon being introduced. So even though there were some, like, readers who were like, ah, when's, you know, when are the Canes going to come back? You know, they very much realized that this character was the new one. Um, Grant Morrison occasionally would reference these characters, um, you know, more recently, Batman Incorporated. Uh, the Grayson comic, actually, Kathy Kane and uh, yes, Betty Kane would be referenced again, Kathy, too. Kathy, I think, is like the head of Spiral? Yes, she's Agent Zero in Spiral. Yeah. Which... I don't know... Oh, yeah. Worth mentioning, Kathy Kane, I do not believe, is related to Kate Kane? No, actually, her real name is... She has a different last name, actually. And I think that's something that's gotten into in Batman Incorporated. Because Kate Kane, the one that we all know now, you know, uh, the uh, um, Batwoman of current days, is, you know, was clearly meant to be an homage to that character when they'd written her out of existence. 
But because, you know, Grant Morrison, they're a big fan of, you know, using every single yes. aspect of Batman continuity as in existence. As far as Grant Morrison is concerned, everything is canon. Exactly. So they clearly had to come up with some way to reconcile that connection, especially considering how, you know, in Batwoman's comic, like, the Kane family is like a whole, its own separate thing as well. Yeah, they're they're cousins of the Waynes. Yeah. Like so obviously can't can't have, you know, a hidden you know, past, you know, socialite girlfriend who was Batgirl was Batwoman for a time, you know, be connected to that. Because Bruce like Bruce and Kate are like I remember seeing a comic where they are sitting together at Bruce's parents' funeral. Yeah, they were, yeah. Like they've always been like close. Now, for the teenage daughter bit, um, I can't think to whether there's anything that's being pulled here, but I can say that uh, Kathy Kane and Betty Kane were moved to Earth 2 a few years before this. There was one story where the two of them were in Earth 2, and Dick was an adult Robin, which is very strange to see. It's really weird, yeah. So I'm guessing that Alan might be combining concepts here, and it might be Helena, uh, yes, Helena Wayne, who was the first Huntress, who he's kind of hinting at. Helena Wayne, the daughter of Bruce and Selena. Yeah, but Selena, you know, not a factor uh, in this particular Bam, situation, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, because like, and the other thing is that um. Remember when Helena Wayne was inexplicably on on Prime Earth uh, pretending to be Helena Bertinelli? No. What? The Is first, that a New 52 the thing? First or? Years of, the first few years of New 52, the huntress that you see that calls herself Helena Bertinelli is actually Helena Wayne. Oh, and then <laughs> Helena Bertinelli was introduced as an agent of Spiral, I think, later, then, right? Okay. And then Helena Wayne goes back to earth too okay so they really hate they really hate huntress huh like they really are not a huge fan of that character correct um so jason asks or superman says i'm gonna put him somewhere secure uh referencing mongol and jason goes like you mean like build a prison he says no not exactly have you ever noticed that black hole as you come in via the western spiral arm of the galaxy superman big guy when would Jason have ever noticed that? When would he have ever been in a position to notice that? <laughs> he was stealing tires a year ago, living in an abandoned garage. Listen, sometimes the big man's perspective is a little off. It's fine. Uh, but he says, it's quite large. I think I'll drop him into it. And he smile on his face when he says this, by the way, that he's going to throw Mongol into a black hole. Uh and so Wonder Woman says, Cal, now that we've broken the ice at your birthday party, can I give you this? It's an exact bo- it's an exact duplicate uh, city it's an exact duplicate of the bottle city of Candor to replace the real one which was enlarged. The Paradise Island gemsmiths made it. You may you need an X ray and microscopic vi- vision to really appreciate it. And Clark goes, Oh, uh, why, Diana, that's just and he grabs he doesn't even grab it, he just flies away grabs the what appears to be the other like the actual the original version of this 
so I I I can't explain that he himself made a duplicate of the bottled city of Candor for himself for some reason because I was under the impression that the bottled city of Candor got shrunk again and he put all those people in the closet. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck is happening here? It's not clear. You need to kind of understand where Kandor is at this particular time in continuity. Right. He flies his duplicate into the closet, flies back, and accepts the new duplicate. Right. But he does it so fast that she doesn't notice it. Yeah. He says, what it's just what I've always wanted. She's like, I'm glad. You must have missed the old one. Happy birthday, Cal. And then they start fucking making out. <laughs> I love that they're making out and like literally like you see Bruce just standing back there with his gift like literally just be like uh, can I go now like Jason trying to not look I'm just saying that we heard that mention from Wendy earlier about Wendy, how these two are just, just good, good friends. friends you know where's where's Batman's kiss then huh what when's Clark gonna kiss Batman if those I two mean, were such good friends as well. I mean, listen, you know, the, especially, like, pre-crisis, like, given Wonder Woman's origins, uh, in, you know, her real-world origins as being based off of, the, based off of uh, the, her creator's second wife, who he was in a polyamorous relationship with, yeah, like you know I'm what? I'm sure somebody floated the idea of a Batman Wonder Woman Superman thruple. I'm sure exactly. I'm sure somebody is pitching that today. Some uh, if if they are able to do that, they're my hero. I'll tell you that. But I mean, like literally, again, just good friends. But y'all are gonna make it out in front of the other just good. Like I'm just saying, prior to New Fifty Two. There wasn't a Superman Wonder Woman comic that existed out there. Superman Wonder Woman World's Finest. That wasn't what they were called. They didn't make a Superman Batman World's Finest. World's oh, Finest. I mean, you know, like all I'm saying, you know, they they had that name. They had that duo. There's also that uh, Darwin Cook uh, art, which actually I'm I'm gonna send to you right now. That this. This this is very much ship art yes. for sure. Well, God, Darwin Cook's art is so good. I yeah, Darwin Cook also a great Superman. What a legend. Um, but like, can you imagine the headline? Can you imagine the the? <laughs> God, can you imagine that would they would put that on like on the news like for that would be on that would be on cnn and fox news at the same time like they they'd be like you know listen like you'd obviously have people being reactionaries about it where they're like oh i don't know like if they reacted to john kent who was called superman being revealed as being bisexual and like you know they're like running with superman is now bisexual if clark kent and batman and and wonder woman as well we're gonna throw a ball that would like change that would change oh there'd be that shit. would that would make tucker carlson explode on oh, television his he- he- that fucking bow tie his head would spin <laughs> off <laughs> Ooh, they... but liberal. of course we the liberal a... agenda <laughs> the leftist agenda to, for polyamory <laughs> 
No, this is just uh, a Superman and Batman story to rec- to um, really accurately represent the good people of Utah. <laughs> you know, I mean, think about it. They fused together, so they've technically... They did, uh, let, yeah. me, let me stop. I was about to say something a little, <laughs> a little bit more detailed. Let me stop. <laughs> woo, woo, I was going to have to break out the <laughs> elevator music. <laughs> But Clark looks at looks at Diana and says, mm, "Why don't we do that more often?" Big part. Why did he moan? That's not. Yeah. I'm not doing that for the sake of like a bit. It literally on the text on the page says, "Hmm." Mm. I mean, you know, let let's be honest. Like, I'm know. telling you. <laughs> Wonder Woman's response is literally to go too predictable, which pretty much explain literally like yes. clearly whoever created Superman and Wonder Woman's relationship post New Fifty Two was not paying attention to this page, was not paying attention to this panel when they were thinking that out. It's too predictable. It's yeah, the strongest man and woman alive. Uh, yeah, sure, makes sense. Yeah. Bruce says, uh, Jason and I brought you this new breed of rose named the Krypton, but, uh, well, I'm afraid it got stepped on, and, well, frankly, it's dead. So Sorry, it's bud, it's dead. <laughs> Don't worry about it, Bruce. Perhaps it's for the best. Come on, does somebody want to make coffee while I clean the place up? And then, uh, in the epilogue, it's like an insatiable virus, he sweeps out the across the universe, and his enemies are dust beneath his feet. Suns shudder at his coming. The great power of the cosmos kneel before him and kiss his fingertips. Vast and implacable, a resurrected war world wheels through the bottomless, the bottomless night, reducing galaxy after galaxy to smoking ruin. The stars run red, yet the nebulae echo with the screams of the dying. He is content. And it's just an extreme close-up on Mongol's face, and it's so tight. Yeah, the whole thing, the whole page, like, I think that one of the things that's underrated about this is the colorist, or the coloring of these. You get, like, this this epilogue is completely caked in red. Mongol is, like, almost, like, dark side-like as yeah, far as kind of I his impression. Yeah, like, he very much looks more, even more powerful than we saw him in this actual page. Yes. And he looks, and, you know, he has these aliens kneeling in turns and kissing his hand, you know, as literally, Warworld is just moving to the left, like, of the page, and there's literally just little blasts coming out of Warworld, destroying planets as it goes by. He is content. And if you don't know what Warworld is, it's just the Death Star. Yeah. It's, it is just the Death Star. Um... But yeah, that is, uh, you know, for the man who has everything. And um, yeah, this is one of, again, I, I know that I feel like every time uh, I do a DC story on this podcast, I talk about like these great, uh, like celebrated runs, these great celebrated mm-hmm. creative teams. But like Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, uh really really two of the best really at their best when they're working with each other um you know i don't think that alan moore had a co like 
creator that I think he was, he was as great with, um, other than maybe Alan Davis. And I haven't right. read enough of like the more in Davis stuff to say that confidently, but it's like, yeah, Dave Gibbons, uh, co-creator of Watchmen. And it's, it's interesting too, because like Alan Moore does get a lot of the, the lion's share of the credit, uh, for that. I mean, and I think fair to say that because he, his writing does so much for it, but it isn't what it is with any other artist. This story is yeah. what it is with any other artist. Um, and uh, Dave Gibbons still at it today. You know, despite yes. that he's he's seventy three years old, uh, but he he's still going to this day. Uh, just or just this year, he's working on a um, like a like an IDW project, like a charity hmm. thing. Oh wow! Um, uh, but yeah, he. You know, as recently as 2018, did some stuff for um, for Action Comics. You know, he's still around, still doing a lot of stuff. This story, if you were trying to like defend the good name of Superman, this story is one that I recommend. Um, and mm. if you're somebody who just wants to like read a good Superman story because you don't, you know, you want to like him and you don't really know how to get a good grasp on him this is one i recommend um the tricky thing with superman is that because of the way the, that pop culture shifted to the 90s superman really has a weird few years there in the 90s before kind of getting set back to what we know and like about him uh in the early in the mid 2000s let's say and yeah. Now it's like, all right, Superman was played out. We're gonna get rid of him. We're gonna we're gonna take him off planet. His son's gonna be Superman, which is cool. Um, but if you want a good picture of Clark, you want a good idea of who Kal El is as a person, uh, for the man who has everything. Yeah. To to your point as well. I would say that this story is as strong as it is because it kind of mirrors the Silver Age story. Yes. It kind of mirrors like the super dickery stories that people know of. It's a hoax. It's a dream. It's an imaginary tale, but it has real consequences. Right. And it's like, I mean, like I mentioned when we were talking about this, Clark has been to Krypton a few times at by the time in this story in the Silver Age. He's seen his father. He's had these imaginary stories where he's met like a Lois Lane on Krypton. It's like, what if he lived there? And then he wakes up and it's like, well, back to my normal life. But the approach to this is kind of turning a Silver Age story on its head. You know, kind of mirroring Krypton's idealized shape in the same way that someone might look to the 1950s compared to the 1980s. And, you know, kind of see those, see that as being, oh, you know, maybe someone in the 1980s who's older might see the 1950s as being this idealized thing. And Clark going home to Krypton is like kind of what that would be like if someone had the ability to do that. And, you know, Clark being able to fully react to having that experience. Right. I think what's most important about this story and the thing that makes this story the most the strongest that it is, 
is unlike most of those Silver Age stories, Clark reacts to losing, you know, that piece of home. Right. It's not just one of those stories where he has this wild and wacky adventure and he gets to go out and do whatever he wants. Like, no, he gets to go back to Krypton, but there's a price to it. Right. And when he comes out of it, you know, obviously Mongol's the one who did it not to help him, you know, to quote unquote help him, but it ends up being a painful experience, which almost feels a bit like it's hearkening kind of another one of those little early bird teasers to, you know, the Man of Steel relaunch in the next year, which erases all that Silver Age stuff of going back to Krypton, of Krypton being this wonder world, this place that Clark knows so much about. And it almost kind of feels like it's this sort of, you know, Clark loses Krypton in this story. And in a year in Man of Steel, he loses Krypton again, this time in a way where he won't be able to kind of just go back and have these wonderful adventures there. So it can be read as like this standalone story. It can be read as a product of its time, you know, this sort of bridge in between pre-crisis and post-crisis. And it can also be read as this sort of, you know, kind of fun experience of modernizing one of those classic Superman stories, which really makes it a triple threat of like an intriguing little thing to go into. Um, I want to ask you though, Marcus, uh, we talked a lot about the differences between this and the animated version. You've read this story before and I have as well, but if you were to sit out and go, I want to experience for the man who has everything, would you read this comic? Or would you watch that episode of Justice League Unlimited? I think the tricky thing is that they're kind of fundamental. Like, it's the same story, but the Krypton parts of it are so different uh, for right. each version of it. That, like, I feel like the story hits a lot harder in in the, uh, the animated version because... Hmm of the change to the relationship with uh with Jorel in it um this it's still it's like i was saying earlier it's a uh, what's the word you get to see it more of more as this like ideal superman is in his ideal reality superman gets to have the gift that no one is able to give him um he gets to have everything he ever wanted uh, and then it hurt like you feel it a lot more when that is taken from him when he right. is I think holding Van L as he comes out of the as he comes out of it versus yeah. here where it's like yeah he got everything he wanted and then now you get to see everything that happened after that point because everything he wanted was one singular thing which is that Krypton never exploded he doesn't get this perfect ideal uh, life with his family. He gets this very complicated one. Um, yeah. Which I think is super interesting in its own right. But I think as like an isolated, serialized piece of media, um, the Justice League Unlimited episode, uh, I would give. Plus it has the benefit of having all these great voice performances. Um, right. Right. 
of this text, actually. Literally right. just yeah, that's the thing. page like, to screen. Like, I think that episode is... I think Alan Moore does have, like, a, a writing credit on that episode. I think he's credited as a co-writer on it. Yes, and he did co-sign it, too, like yes. you mentioned. Um, he, he looked it over before they put anything out and was like, okay, yeah, this is good. Um, but, you know, it's a lot of the same words, it's the same story, but I think having the vocal performances, um, especially because they kept the same voice actors for a lot of those characters for a long time. Like, through, like yeah. uh, that's Kevin Conroy as Batman. Um, I'm blanking on the, the Superman actor's name. I can take a look real quick. Uh, but it's th- they've had the same cast for years, so these guys have a lot of like chemistry, a, lot, a really good back and forth between all of them. And... The the uh, I think having them having these distinct voices speak it um, and hearing them say it, hearing Superman verbalize to Van, I don't think you're real. Like I think it's uh, I think it's one of the best you know, best single DC animated properties ever, and DC's made a lot of great animated things, but that one episode. Uh, like there's a lot of episodes of Justice League that really stand out. Like that one, uh, the one with um, what's your name, Ace from the uh, yes, yeah, that episode's the... really good. Uh, the Batman Beyond kind of finale episode that is hidden the inside, epilogue, yeah, hidden inside Justice League Unlimited. Um, the Question Authority two parter. Honestly, just watch Justice League Unlimited. It's uh Exactly it's one, one of the like if you want like a good superhero show, uh Justice League Unlimited um is is goddamn perfect. Yeah. But there is a reason why, you know, George Newbern, um, you know, and Tim Daly as well, who voiced Superman in the Superman animated series, uh Susan Eisenberg who voices Wonder Woman in quite a few properties as well. And Kevin Conroy, I mean, it's it, he he pretty much has voiced Batman since Kevin the DC Conroy, animated thing started. Right, Kevin Conroy. I think, with the exception of like Young Justice, like there have been like three voice actors for Batman in in the last thirty years. It's Kevin Conroy, Bruce Greenwood, and Troy Baker, and like that's it. Like I think there might be somebody else in Under the Hood or somebody else in Scattered. Yeah, Dance, but it's mostly those three. But it's primarily Kevin Conroy, and it's because he's perfect as as Batman. Um, it's like Michael Rosenbaum as uh, as Wally West. Like I, you have to hear that voice right. when you're doing that. Right. Like to your to your point, like the voice performances definitely help, but there are also some things that are edited from the page to the screen that kind of help yeah. uh, me personally with the story. Uh, Wonder Woman getting in a little bit more offense on Mongol. She does a big old German suplex on she him. She does, yeah. Um, you know, as well as kind of just with kind of the Krypton story, like there's almost kind of a bit of an environmentalist take that you could pull from, you know, everyone ridiculing Jor-El here versus kind of and ignoring Jor-El here in the animated version versus him going full-on conservative in the text and having all the other things that fall around with that. Like, I would say, to a degree, that reading could be a bit more timeless, uh, even more than kind of, you know, kind of the the approach to conservatives uh, that's done in this original story. Yeah. 
But I would still say both of them are worth your time. I mean, this story has been collected in a variety of different uh, uh, collections. It's also in a trade paperback that includes whatever happened to... Uh, no, uh, it includes uh, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, whatever which is another... Yeah, which is another kind of this era of Superman sort of a send-off to that version of Superman. Um, and it's also just been collected in Alan Moore collections, the greatest Superman stories ever told. It very clearly has its own pedigree beyond even just kind of being adapted to an animated version. So they're both worth your time if you want to check them out. Um, but I think we're in agreement, uh, Marcus, that... Uh, um, that I think that the animated version would be the one that the two of us would like to revisit as well. Um, you know, even with this story kind of being one that is accessible to read too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and you can just, uh, if you just want to read this as an isolated story, it's on uh, DC Universe uh, Infinite. Uh, you just look up Superman Annual number 11 um, and you just go from there. Um, but uh, that's that's our show <laughs> that's uh that's our show for for this episode uh thank you all for joining us through the last couple hours trying to keep it short uh but you know this is a it's a weighty text mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot to unpack with it um you can follow me on twitter at archer arios a-r-x-h-e-r-a-r-i-o-s the x is a c don't make me explain it uh <laughs> You can follow the show at MCMF Pod uh, on Twitter. You can follow Alex on Twitter and Twitch. I can be found at Crystal Pepsi's with two eyes on Twitter. Uh, I can also be found on Twitter at UG Schoolboy, uh, which is my streaming account for Twitch. If you want to see me play WWE 2K22 or. You know, maybe a little bit of uh, some other stuff here and there. Spider-Man, Miles Morales, you know, I'm there too. Uh, Alex, thank you uh, for joining me on this episode. Uh, it's good having you back. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll cook up something else uh, for, for the next time. Uh, until uh, the next episode, everyone, uh, take care, and we will catch you next time. All right, take it easy.